Hey, how's it going? It is going really well. I am sitting here drinking tea, ready to talk to you, and then uh, go and spend some time with my kids. It's kind of a nice, quiet, relaxed evening. What are you up to? Yeah, I just finished up two full days of school. My semester started yesterday. And oh, my yeah. Brain... Welcome back to school. Yeah, thank you. I'm really excited. My classes could not be more different. I told you before that I'm doing this spiritual formation class that is very intentional, relational, get you in touch with Jesus on purpose, sort of an, a vibe. And then there is the theology of God, the doctrine of God, heavy theology, lots of books, lots of reading, really tight argumentation to tease out. Wow. This is like splitting my soul in half, and I'm not sure where I'm going to like put my emphasis at any given moment. It's it's pretty good. It's I, I really like using both sides of my brain that way. Oh, man. You better have some good thoughts. I, dude, if I don't, I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> that is true. You are paying a lot of money for who knows what. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, I am paying a lot of money to go to seminary. And I can't believe that as a near seminary graduate, I'm about to ask a seminary graduate a very rudimentary question. But, but it's so foundational and the answer to it, I think, is so multifaceted that I really want to explore this idea of what is the gospel? Ooh, that's interesting. So uh, is there something that is raising this question for you? Like, what what makes you interested in this question right now? A lot of things kind of converge for me, but... Primarily, it is that thought that I talked about a couple of weeks ago when I was taking communion and I felt like that communion experience was less than the experience was meant to be. Not because we were doing it wrong, it was just confined in some ways that I didn't really love. And sometimes I feel like our presentation of the gospel is equally confined or empty. Not that it is wrong. It is just not well fleshed out. And so people get, you know, repent of your sins, believe in Jesus, and you will be saved. All of which is absolutely true. But there is so much more to that reality. It is so much deeper. It affects not just us and our sins that we've committed. It's a cosmic reality. It's a global reality. It's an interpersonal reality. It's a new creation reality. I feel like it is bigger than that pithy statement that we all know and have used. So I want to know from you as a pastor who guides new believers all the time, how do you introduce them to this concept And what do you kind of reserve for maybe the next layer of knowledge or something like that? Mm. Okay, let me preface this with, let me make one introductory comment before I jump into answering that question. And here is that introductory comment. When you are starting fresh with a new kind of information, a new kind of truth with somebody, 
you often have to get the big ideas in place first before you can nuance them. You and I have talked about this offline when we talk about history or presidential politics or anything like that. You need to get the big ideas sort of in place so that people can hang their hat on those big ideas. Does that make sense? Yeah, you're exactly right. Man, thank you for using the history analogy. That makes me think of going back when I was like, hey, I don't know anything about World War II. And so I set up like a, like a, actually, I didn't know anything about World War I or World War II. So I set up a whole year-long course for myself. But the very first thing I did with each of the wars was read an overview of the entire war. And then I read some like smaller tidbits about battles and certain aspects of the war. And then I came back around again to read another overview of the entire war. And boy, that that last, you know, overview was way more intelligible for me because I put all those other pieces in place. Absolutely. And here's one of the dangers I think that happens in Christian growth is that as we grow, we look back at the gospel that was introduced to us in what I suppose we could call embryonic form and say about that gospel, hey, that's not the whole gospel, to which anybody who was introducing us to that gospel would be like, well, yeah, we know that. (laughs) Um, and, And I say this because I sometimes hear, you know, you take something like what I was raised on, which is the four spiritual laws. And I have heard those almost thrown in the face of the generation of Christians before us as if, hey, that is way too simplistic. But when I look at the way that the Christians I know who still love and follow Jesus are doing so, there is no sense in their lives that that's all there is to Christianity or that's all there is to the gospel. It was just a good starting point. They were Mm. trying to get those basic ideas to let us hang our hats on so that we could then nuance them for ourselves but they just wanted to give us the basics. And so all of this to say, if I, at any point in the conversation, start saying, well, clearly that's not the whole gospel, or, you know, it's not like this is all there is to the gospel, I want to go on record as saying, I I don't think that anybody ever presented the gospel as if that was all there was, in my personal experience. Maybe that happened in somebody else's personal experience. But in my experience, I was given the gospel in embryonic form because that's all I could handle. Hmm. And I may have tried to codify rather than develop that acorn of the gospel. It's almost like I tried to cryogenically freeze it rather than plant it in dirt. And that wasn't always good for me. Yeah, I love what you had to say there at the end. I mean, I loved all of it, not just the end. but Me too. (laughs) the idea of just codifying that acorn rather than nurturing it, rather than growing it and developing it. And that I think is part and parcel actually of the gospel, that it was never meant to be locked in to, as you say, four spiritual truths. And I'm not, I agree with you that it is an embryonic way of sharing the gospel. So it's in that respect, it is useful but it was never meant to remain 
as these uh, boiled down, simplified truth statements because it was meant to grow. It was meant to develop. We were meant to grow with it and into it. So how we take that germ of truth or how we take that embryonic introduction to truth and use it is of supreme importance. Exactly. And so with that thought in mind, remind me what your question actually was, because I have now lost track of it. Yeah, I would love to know, where do you start with folks? When you are introducing them to the gospel, and I don't know, I hope to not personalize this too much, because here's what here's my fear. My fear is that you're going to tell me, and then I'm going to go, yeah, but shouldn't it be this? And now we're going to argue about, like, not argue, but we're going to debate your methods. But I would actually like to have an expansive conversation about where we think the gospel should start and how it we should grow into it and with it as we mature. That's good. You know, it's funny— over the years, there has been a subtle shift in my emphasis on starting point from A to B to C. Here's the way the shift has been. And I believe all three of these things, by the way. It's just the starting point that changes. Sure. I started off emphasizing you need to believe that Jesus is God. And that would be really my starting point. If you believe that Jesus is God, we can figure it out. And there came a point where I shifted towards you need to believe that Jesus can forgive you of your sins. And I think I have shifted once again to trying to find some way of saying the real gospel is that Jesus wants to be king in your life. Hmm. And the shift from, at least in the way that I was presenting it, from a thing you need to think to a transaction for your sins to be wiped clean to a surrender of your life to let it be under new leadership sort of captures a lot of my journey with the gospel and how I start people on the gospel. I love that. And I completely agree. And I really like the way that you defined each of these starting points. Something that you need to think versus a transaction you need to do, then someone to whom you need to surrender. Those are very, very different actions on your part. And starting with this is what you need to think is a very Western Enlightenment rational way of beginning. And then transaction, that was a huge word for me. You know, in leadership circles, they talk about a transactional leader versus a transformational leader. And mm. a transactional leader just, you know, hey, this is what we're doing. I need this from you. You do this for me. And that's just how we get things done. And there's a time and a place for that type of leadership. But it is there is another level that we need to get to as leaders, but you're saying that also is true of the way we start with God. We don't start with a transaction. We also don't start with 
a rational proposition that we have to assent to. We start with a person mm. and a relationship with that person. What will our relationship with Jesus be? Yeah, that's exactly right. Which the one thing that hasn't changed, obviously, in all three of those things is the centrality of Jesus. There is no gospel without Jesus. But what has evolved is exactly that. It is profoundly relational, profoundly relational in a way that is imbalanced. We are not peers, me and Jesus. He's in charge and I am not. And that is the only relationship with which he is interested in moving forward with me. But he would be delighted to move forward in that relationship and invites me to do so. You know, something you said there, which I don't disagree with, but I think is jarring in our culture right now. You used kind of power language and power dynamics in the way you talked about that. Jesus, we're not equals. He's in charge. I am not. That's the only way we move forward. That sounds very hierarchical. It sounds very stiff. It sounds, frankly, uninviting. So it it does. And it do you remember that hideous strength by C.S. Lewis? Yeah. There is this wonderful scene where the powers of heaven are being represented by a prophetic figure, a, a person to a common, everyday, normal person from the middle 20th century. And they are having a discussion about marriage. And the common, kind of normal, everyday lady who's sort of supposed to represent us in the conversation says, hey, don't, don't the people that you represent, wouldn't they be interested in whether or not I agree with their stance on marriage? And the prophetic figure responds, no, they (laughs) definitely would not be interested in that. (laughs) Ouch. And that scene has stuck with me as a good parable of the power differential between me and God. And how we so often seek to usurp power in the relationship that is not ours. Mm. That is a good point. And I love that I kind of challenged the notion of the power dynamic and you didn't shy away from it. I think that's the easy thing to do theologically these days is to just shy away from the power dynamic that no, God gets to say What is or isn't acceptable, he gets to be king, you get to be the follower. That's how this works. So I like that. I think the thing that I would add to it is the benevolence of the one offering this relationship. Going back to some of the ancient treaties that were signed between an overlord and their subjects— this was often a very benevolent contract wherein, hey, if you give me, the king, the overlord, the honor 
and the royalties do me, then this is what I will be doing for you to protect, to oversee, to provide, and all of these things. It was an imbalanced relationship, but with benefits to the one being ruled. And Mm. even more benevolent than some overseer in the ancient world, we have a loving God who signed the contract through his own death. So this is a God who very much is pursuing us, but is pursuing us on his terms. Absolutely. And it's the the pursuit. It is wonderful and glorious and profound. And our highly democratic mindset simply cannot make room for the beauty of what it means for a God of such incredible greatness to pursue us. There's this, in some old hymns, it speaks of God condescending. And again, because of our deeply democratic tendencies, the word condescend has come to have very negative connotations. But it is not a negative word. It is literally beneath him to notice us. (laughs) And for him to therefore do so is heart-stopping and beautiful and breathtaking. Yeah, I mean, the psalmist says this. I mean, what what is man that you would notice him? Yeah. So, So we're getting a little off track here, I think. You asked about kind of starting point for the gospel. When you think of sharing the gospel with somebody, what is your starting point? Yeah, I I think that is somewhat of a individualized question because absolutely people are in different places with their knowledge, understanding, openness, acceptance, whatever of of Jesus and following him. So to some degree, that has to be dependent on the person. But like you, I am very inclined toward introducing them to Jesus. This is a person. We have to answer the question, who will Jesus be to me? Will he be just this name that people use as a swear word, you know, Jesus Christ? Will he be something abstract? Will he be relegated to the realm of partisan politics and pulled out and used whenever I want to make my political point? Will Jesus be just a figure on a page or in history? Or will Jesus be a living, breathing person in my life to whom I owe my allegiance, to whom I follow? So, I think that is the question, however you phrase it, that somebody has to answer when it comes to the gospel message, because Jesus is the gospel, pure and simple. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was just thinking as you were describing that I have always been a very linear thinker. So I remember asking myself this question, how do I share the gospel with somebody? And... I was supposed to go to the Bible to answer the question. So where in the Bible do you go to answer the question? How do you share the gospel? 
Book of Acts, right? <laughs> and who is the key person? Paul. Probably Paul, but throughout the gospel, several people share the gospel. But I mean, throughout the book of Acts, several people share the gospel. And so I decided I was going to go through the book of Acts and write down all the consistent elements of the gospel from when Peter shares it on Pentecost through Paul's travels to Lystra and Derby and Ephesus and Berea and Thessalonica, all the way to Rome, and figure out what are the common elements. And honestly, the only real common element was Jesus. Hmm. It was shared differently every time. Context dictated the starting point. There were different details added for the folks in Antioch than there were for the folks in Thessalonica or Athens. And Paul seemed super comfortable with that, just as long as it was about Jesus. Yeah, it makes me think of a guy by the name of Carl Medeiros, and he is a missionary out in the Middle East, and his story is fascinating. Basically, he was a guy that grew up in the States, and in young adulthood, God told him, you're going to be a missionary to the Middle East. He's like, I've never even met a Middle Eastern person. I don't know Arabic. I don't know any of this. God says, I know, I'll figure it out. So fast forward, he's been out in the Middle East for over 25 years, speaks Arabic fluently, and is well known out there and has been invited on numerous occasions into debates with Muslim clerics about Christianity and Islam. And his whole thing, and he wrote a book called Simply Jesus, because this is his approach from the day he arrived in the Middle East to today. Just preach Jesus. That is the only mm. thing I can do is preach Jesus. So sometimes the Muslim clerics will want to pull him into current events debates or debates about the authenticity of this or that or you know the, this theological point. And at the end of the day, he just is like, yeah, you know— Jesus did this thing and I got to reckon with Jesus and what he said about that. And that's it. That's all there. That's all I can say. And so he just keeps bringing Jesus back to every single thing because that is the gospel. You have to define what your relationship with Jesus is going to be. That's good. And, and you know, this is coming back to Paul. This is exactly what Paul said, right? While I was among you, I determined to know Jesus and him only. That was the gospel for Paul. Lots of other things he could talk about. He was a scholar, but all of yeah. that was secondary. I did a whole research paper. This was a maddening experience. I did a research paper for one of my seminary classes where I tried to figure out what Paul's definition of being a mature Christian was. So I started off by like, okay, I'm going to find this. I'm going to figure this out. I read every single one of Paul's letters. He never defines it. He I mean, of all the things he could have given us, a definition of what we're shooting for would be awesome. No kidding, huh? And he didn't do it. So that's when I really was, I was like, oh, shoot, I've like committed to this. I've told my professor, this is what I'm writing a paper on. And I got nothing. Paul never even answered that question. 
So then I really started digging deeper into Paul's writings and this idea of being, quote, in Christ was tantamount. Like it just, it was everywhere. He talked about being in Christ and being in Christ and being in Christ. And anytime he mentioned maturity, he mentioned it in concert with this idea of being in Christ. And I feel like my answer to that question, what does Paul, what is Paul's vision of mature Christianity? So we talked about what the starting point is. What's the ending point? I actually think Mm. they're exactly the same. We start in Christ and when we are at the end of our life and we are found to still be in Christ, we have arrived. Yeah. The one thing, and I don't know exactly how to add this in. Maybe this is the love God, love your neighbor pieces. But the other thing that Paul seems to mention rather frequently, uh, as does Jesus, is that you can love people that on a human level, there is no rational reason or capacity to love. How many times does Paul write something to the effect of, hey, Jews, you know what the gospel means? It means you can love Gentiles now. Or Jesus writing, they'll know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. Hmm. There has to be something about loving one another. And, and by loving one another, I really mean loving different one another's. If I lean conservative in my politics, loving people who lean liberal in their politics. If I am passionately Pentecostal, I mean loving someone who is Baptist or Methodist or whatever. Mm -hmm. There has to be something about loving a person that is profoundly different from me that is included in spiritual maturity. I agree with you, but what I want to suggest, though, is that that is a consequent or a result of being found in Christ rather than the aim in and of itself. I think we've talked offline about things that you can only get by striving for other things. And the only way I can love people who are different from me, or even like when we go, when we talked about managing leadership anxiety, and we talked about making that list of people that we automatically judge, the only way I can love those people is with the love of Christ. And the only way I get the love of Christ is by being found in Christ. So that is the aim, and loving other people is the consequent. As long as we acknowledge loving people is clearly consequent, but your love of Christ isn't real if you don't love others. Uh, You know, I think of 1 John 4, 20. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. Consequent, but not secondary. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. Maybe even, we might even call it, it's the litmus test. A litmus test is not the thing itself. It is an evidence of the thing itself. But if the evidence is not there, the thing itself is not there. Yes. And loving your neighbor is the litmus test for... Do you love God? And 
to your point, I want to actually read, this was going to be my thought, but I've got another thought in reserve, so have no fear. But this just fits so well into our conversation. I started my spiritual formation class today, and the working definition of spiritual formation is exactly what we're talking about here. And so I'm just going to read it. Spiritual formation is the process of being formed, conformed, and transformed into the image of Christ, and here's the kicker, for the sake of others, to the glory of God. Spiritual formation is the process of being formed, conformed, and transformed into the image of Christ for the sake of others, to the glory of God. Mm. And I love that they put for the sake of others. It can't be, as some people tend to say, navel gazing. It can't be just, let me focus on me and myself and my relationship with God. Spiritual transformation, spiritual formation has an outward modality to it that if it never gets pushed outward, you probably didn't learn the lesson in the first place. Yeah. Spiritual transformation starts with the interior life. But boy, if it does not hit the exterior life, it doesn't. if it doesn't hit the way I interact with other people, something is backfiring. I think what we're saying is the gospel begins and ends with Christ and transforms us into people that can go out and love the world. Absolutely. I would settle on that as the beginning and end of the story and feel like if somebody were using that as the the markers on the journey, they would end up in a good place. Yeah, it almost feels like cheating, though, because this is what Jesus said, too, right? The whole law and the prophets boils down to this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That's, that's what it's always yeah. been. We've literally invented nothing new on this podcast today. Well, yes, I was going to say, it took us 35 minutes to figure out that Jesus is right. <laughs> There's our profound thought for the day. We may as well just roll We're it up right down. now. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. Talk to you later. But we may just end there. But since we're too arrogant to actually end there, have you had any other thoughts this week? (laughs) Yeah. So my other thought this week is just kind of a funny moment. So you and your wife and me and my wife are currently in a group text conversation to plan a vacation together next year. Mm -hmm. And super fun. I'm really enjoying the prospects of what we might do. But because of our geography, we're actually talking about meeting up in Utah. And I don't hear a lot of people vacationing in Utah. But there's actually a lot of really great destinations. But my wife found a picture online of some people kayaking in the salt flats of Utah. And the picture is stunning. And she sent this around to us and said, I don't know where this is or how we do this, but this looks fun. And I totally agree. It it does. And so I Google searched it to try to figure out where this was and how you do it. And that's when I found out that these canals through the salt flats are actually not on public ground. They're on private property and they 
belong to a, a potash factory, and this is kind of their refuse water. I don't or somehow connected to the plant there, and they'd actually they don't think it's harmful to humans, but they also don't want to take a risk. And so I think they've actually drained these canals because so many people, because of this Facebook or Instagram post, were showing up to try to like paddleboard or canoe or whatever down these like canals and the salt flats when it was just water coming from the factories. I just thought that is the quintessential image of what social media does. It's this false picture of reality that looks so enticing. And you're like, man, that person's just doing it right. You know, they're kayaking in one of the most mm -hmm. gorgeous places you could think of. Look at this picture. Yeah, no, it's just factory runoff water. I don't think it's going to hurt you, but you probably don't want to get in it. That is, that is a very different thing <laughs> than what the picture portrayed. That is so unfortunate and so awesome all at the same time. Yeah. Uh, this is why we always have to remember social media isn't real. Except our page. Our page is 100% real. Please like us, follow us, enjoy our content, and share this podcast with people because we do nothing but real and figure out 35 minutes into it that Jesus was right. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, and we would love to hear your thoughts. Uh, it's why we post quotes so often throughout the week from our, our discussion. We're hoping to hear what you have to say and uh, what you think about them. And so we would love to hear that. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But. So unfollow everybody else. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And when we post our vacation photos, just know that it was probably in some factory wastewater. Yep. All right. Your turn. What are your thoughts? Oh, man. So this week, my thought comes from a quote-unquote pastor fail. I was... I was just coming out of a meeting and someone was ringing the door at the church and the person who answers the door was brought them over to me and said, hey, this person needs prayer, wondering if you could pray for them. And I started talking with the guy and the conversation ended with, no, I, I won't pray for you, which always seems like an odd thing for me to say as a pastor. Um, <laughs> a little. A little, right? But here was the scenario. He is... I don't recall if he was an alcoholic or an addict uh, of some kind, but he was, he has a job. He is living in his truck with his dog and he is using all the money he earns at his job in his addiction. And he wanted prayer. And when he, he said, Hey, I'm, I'm living in my truck. I'm, you know, whatever I, I said, you know, honestly, it doesn't sound like you need prayer. It sounds like you need a plan. <laughs> you know, like we have a residential program and I would love to get you the number. We have a recovery program of a nine-month discipleship program that'll help you deal with your addiction. And, and I would love to get you the number for that too. But I don't think you need prayer. I think you need a plan. And he said, well... The problem with that is then I don't know what to do with my dog and blah, blah. And I said, well, it is a real life situation that you may have to choose between your sobriety and your dog. And as a real person, you totally get to make that choice. And it's 
entirely on you. But you may be in a situation where you have to choose, do I want my dog or do I want my sobriety? I don't know that Jesus can help you. I think Jesus might already be offering you everything he's got, and it's just a question of whether or not you're going to accept it. Mm. There are a lot of times people want to be prayed for because they want to feel better without actually having to take action. And I don't want people to feel better if they're unwilling to take action. I want them to feel worse. Mm. Yeah. Because I want them to take action so that they can actually, you know, coming back to our definition of the gospel, the gospel is about Jesus being king. Do you, do you want to wave the white flag or not? And yeah. Jesus can't help you if you're unwilling to wave that white flag. It's not that he's unwilling. It's just that he's offering help and you're saying no. So you can't say, dear Jesus, please help me while I refuse your help. <laughs> That's a weird prayer. Well, and honestly, it is really tantamount to saying, I don't like what Jesus is offering me. Can you pray that Jesus would offer me something else? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to which my answer is no. <laughs> because really what you want is second-rate wellness. And yeah. Jesus wants you to take the risk on actual, real, 100% wellness. And he's not satisfied with your second-rate, okay, wellness that you're dreaming of. He has bigger dreams and better dreams. And they require far more sacrifice, but they're better. Yeah. Man, that is the most unspiritual spiritual thing ever. Yeah, except for the incredible, sinful, awful thing we now have to discuss, which is one of us has a, a dog or something akin to a dog <laughs> that is called a schnoodle. <laughs> uh, yeah, so thanks for setting that up. Uh, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> I too do. Much? I, is it too much? Uh, no, it was probably, uh, it was probably accurate. It, painfully accurate, but accurate. Uh, yeah, we may live in the middle of nowhere in some forested, in, in the middle of the forest, but we have a little pint-sized dog that is no, no more than 11 pounds. It is a schnoodle, which you cannot say in a masculine way. There's no way to say, yeah, I got a schnoodle. Schnoodle. I have a <laughs> schnoodle. <laughs> I, it can't be done. But it's funny because when we first got the pictures from the breeder, the the pictures were so cute. And it's just this tiny little fluff ball, almost the size of a hamster. And my wife was like, oh, we should name her Lulu. Doesn't that look like a Lulu? And I'm like, look, we're already getting a schnoodle. I'm not naming it Lulu the schnoodle. Uh, so I was <laughs> telling this story at work before the dog arrived. And one of my coworkers was like, oh, no, you just need to like invert everything because you know, schnoodle is a schnauzer poodle. So you just need to like mix up the words and you need to call her not Lulu, but ul ul. And, and it's, it's not a schnoodle, it's a panauzer. So ul ul the panauzer, uh, which I think is awesome. And if we ever get like a big masculine dog, we need to name it ul ul. But for now we have Oakley, actually, is her name. Oakley the schnoodle. Now, I know you've told me this before, but remind me, 
How often do you have to change the batteries in Oakley? <laughs> this conversation is over. <laughs> All right. I'll move on and stop teasing what is honestly a delightful little dog. She is. She's pretty darn awesome. All right. I really enjoyed this. This was really good. Are we on for next week? Absolutely. I can't wait. All right. I'll talk to you then. All right. Talk to you then. Bye.